Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The U.S. Surgeon General has issued a public health advisory calling attention to the mental health challenges children are experiencing. Dr. Vivek Murthy says depression and anxiety have doubled among youth in the pandemic. And early this year, emergency department visits in the U.S. for suspected suicide attempts were 51% higher for adolescent girls when compared to 2019. Now, we know adolescents and teens are regular users of social media, like Instagram, which has internal data showing the platform is harmful to teens. Coming up, we hear more about the changes federal policymakers are pushing big tech companies to adopt to keep children and teens safer. We'll also hear about how parents can help their children. What questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can share a comment or find us on Facebook at Where We Live and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we get an update from Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. He recently met with TikTok to hear how the company is working to prevent abuse and misuse of its platform. Also, will it commit to reforms to stop the spread of reckless and dangerous content? Content like viral challenges called devious licks and slap a teacher. In his letter to TikTok, Attorney General Tong said viral TikTok videos have resulted in youth overdosing on medications, disfiguring their bodies, and engaging in a wide variety of physically dangerous acts. So what's the company doing to control the spread of harmful content? Again, Attorney General William Tong joins us now on Zoom. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Happy holidays. So you met uh, with TikTok uh, executives recently. Tell us about that that conversation and what you brought up. Well, I, I told them, like like most parents here in Connecticut and across the country, um, this is very personal for me and Liz. It's a constant struggle to keep our kids 15, 13, and 10 off of devices for too long. Phones, tablets, laptops, TV seems like the worst of our problems. And, and trying to keep them away from potentially harmful conduct uh, content. And, and unfortunately, uh, what we saw on TikTok were challenges like the Devious Licks Challenge, which encouraged kids to tear their schools apart and vandalize school bathrooms and property. And unfortunately, we saw that here in Connecticut, in particular at New Britain High School. So as soon as that happened, I demanded a meeting with the senior leadership at TikTok we sat down in person, actually, and, and I got some initial answers about what they do to keep um, offensive or dangerous content off of their platform. We had another meeting um, just the other day, again, where they gave me more detail about their content moderation activities and what they're doing, um, the people they deploy, the technology they use to protect our kids and all of us from content that could be dangerous um, or that's inappropriate or offensive. And, and though they told me that they're doing a lot, 
my response was, you may be doing something, you may even be doing a lot, but clearly it's not working. When you mentioned devious licks for listeners who may not be familiar with TikTok, uh, uh, young people being encouraged, as you mentioned, to vandalize school property, take video of that and then posting it uh, to the platform. Uh, you mentioned content moderation, and you know they do have some uh, processes uh, again to to filter out the bad stuff. But as you mentioned, a lot of it's still getting through. A lot of it's still getting through. You know they. They tell me that they have armies of people that physically put their eyeballs on the screens to look for bad content that they have that the machine and the machine learning uses keywords and search capabilities um, to hunt down offending content on their platform. They tell me that they have age-based controls and other mechanisms. But, you know, the tension with that is they also have an algorithm, right? They have a machine that learns and what the machine knows is that its job is to get you to engage. They make money uh, off of the number of people that are on their platform at any one time. They need more engagement. They need more eyeballs looking at um, TikTok on their phones. And it's not just TikTok, by the way, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, a whole host of social media offerings. And they make money the more people that there are on their platform, the more people that are engaged and, and the length of time that they're engaged. And the machine learns that. And what it tries to do is to get you even more engaged with things that you like, content that you like, more sensational, interesting, sometimes controversial or shocking uh, content. And that gets you engaged on the platform and potentially for some people addicted. So what more can they do when we think about, again, content moderation and thinking about age limits, even what, you know, some countries abroad are doing, uh, you know, when we think about um, forcing these companies to make changes, I'm thinking about Great Britain, Attorney General Tong. Yeah, they need to take um, stronger action to get offending content off of their platform. And they need to reckon with an algorithm um, that sometimes feels like uh, it's out of control. And um, what's most disturbing for me as the parent of two teenage girls are reports that Instagram knows that um, the algorithm, that the content is harmful to young women. So for example, they did a study where um, uh, they typed in search terms uh, like hashtag thinner or hashtag weight loss. And what ended up happening is the algorithm, the machine would learn that the user was interested in in weight loss uh, and and images of people who are losing weight, and that this was a young woman that the machine was engaging with, and so it would send more images of people who were engaged in weight loss programs or who had eating disorders, or who are unnaturally thin or anorexic, and so it, it snowballs into um, you know this this. Um, huge compendium of of offending content that somebody's bombarded with uh, on their on their devices, and then that can lead obviously to bad self image. Um, it can lead to depression. Uh, it can lead to self harm or worse. And that's that's very disturbing and very dangerous to kids and to adults. 
You're hearing Connecticut Attorney General William Tong here on Where We Live. Um, he recently met with TikTok executives to find out what the company is doing uh, to remove harmful content, also these uh, viral uh, challenges encouraging young people to be destructive. If you have a question about uh, government's responsibility and what actions they can take, again, to police uh, these uh, big tech companies, our number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so what tools do you have as Attorney General? Well, we're conducting an investigation now of of Instagram, Facebook, and Meta, and we're trying to understand um, how the algorithm works, how the machine learning works, what it does to uh, get people to engage and to keep them on the platform, um, and, and the ways in which that potentially harms not just young people and young women, but all users. And we've talked a lot about kids but what about adults? What about the amount of misinformation and disinformation that's out there in social media uh, about the vaccine, for example, about COVID, uh, about social distancing measures and misinformation and disinformation around the election um, or elections broadly that may have led to um, violence, particularly on January 6th. This touches all of us. And what's really scary. And the reason why state attorneys general across the country, uh, Democrats and Republicans have come together on this. The reason why we're so focused is because these platforms are so dominant. They're such a part of our everyday lives. And and many of us, including me, you know, we stay in touch with friends and relatives and celebrate the holidays through social media. We buy, we buy holiday gifts through social media and marketplace. We conduct so much business we we do school and work through our computers and social media and the internet it is such a, a a part of our lives that it's hard for us if not impossible for us to disengage from it and because it's so dominant um, we need to know whether it's causing us harm long term and putting people at risk particularly our kids and that's why we're taking strong action as a community of states and attorneys general to hold these social media platforms, including Instagram, accountable. When you say to hold them accountable, looking at uh, how these companies may be violating consumer protection laws, when we think about misuse and abuse? Correct. Connecticut um, has a very strong consumer protection law, the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act. States across the country have similar laws, and that empowers the state acting through the attorney general to protect consumers from harm and to also protect consumers um, from unfair and deceptive acts and practices. Those are the technical legal terms. So to protect us from commercial practices that put us at risk uh, and may do us harm, but also to protect us from, from companies that may be lying to us, that may not be telling us the truth about, about the products they're offering, about their platform, about what they're doing to keep us safe. So all of that is the focus of my work and the work of most attorneys general across this country. Um, in the past year, I can tell you that we've had a number of in-person meetings, uh, you know, the, the pandemic notwithstanding. We've gotten together in person. Uh, we're often on Zoom and our teams are often communicating about how we're going to approach this investigation of Instagram uh, and Facebook. This is in context, uh, the context of our larger efforts around 
the big technology companies and the way they use their monopoly power, particularly a lawsuit we have against Google and a lawsuit that we had against Facebook. We talked about content moderation and also um, how these algorithms um, can continue to, to feed a harmful content, especially uh, to adolescents and teens. But what about rethinking the age minimums? What more can the companies do to make sure that uh, you know certain content and even the fact that, that children and, and teens can sign up for this, um, you know, parents can't be looking over their shoulder all the time, Attorney General? They can't. And, and speaking as a parent, that's a losing battle um, because kids are on their platform, on, on their devices so much. And it's not just a matter of taking their devices away, particularly during a pandemic. Um, kids need their devices to go to school and to do homework. And so much of what they do, uh, you know, at school is on a computer or on an on a tablet or a phone. So it's a losing battle to take those devices away and impossible to do that. And, and it seems far too easy for kids to sign up um, for social media platforms. It seems far too easy for kids, for kids to get to offending inappropriate or offensive or even obscene content on the internet. And I think the platforms and the big technology companies bear some responsibility for that. And so there's a larger discussion about uh, regulation and about um, the responsibility of large technology companies and social media companies to protect users um, and to take offending content off of their platforms and to be responsible when they don't. That debate is around um, an, a section of federal law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And, and in short, Section 230 has for a long time given the big technology companies, including social media companies, a legal shield against liability for content on their platforms. Um, and, and a lot of us think that Section 230, and I strongly believe that Section 230 needs to change and, and that big technology companies and social media platforms need to be held responsible for content on their platforms. So when do you think we'll see movement on this, Attorney General Tom? You know, I wish I could say that that it's going to happen quickly in Congress. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I, I don't believe that, that um, we'll see change in Washington in the near term, which is why state attorneys general have um, initiated this investigation of Instagram and Facebook. It's why we've sued Google and Facebook on antitrust grounds. Um, it's why I'm holding Amazon and other online retailers responsible and accountable for misinformation and disinformation, for example, about COVID and vaccines. Um, we as states need to take action when the federal government is unable or unwilling to do that. And until we see Congress make a huge change in Section 230, it's going to be up to state and states and state attorneys general um, to address all of these issues through the courts. Again, you're hearing Connecticut Attorney General William Tong here on Where We Live. Thank you so much for the update. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. Coming up, we're going to hear from the Wall Street Journal about uh, um, their reporting on what federal lawmakers want to see from big tech companies. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, Director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about social media and what can be done when some of that content is harmful to adolescents and teens. We just heard from Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. He and his counterparts in other states investigating Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook, to see if it violated any consumer protection laws over the way it markets its platform Instagram to children and young adults. Now, Instagram was the subject of a recent Senate hearing over its internal research Research that was leaked by a whistleblower showing how the app is harmful to some teens. With an update, joining us now is Georgia Wells, a tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Georgia, welcome to the show. Hey, Lucy. Thank you for having me. It was the Wall Street Journal's uh, Facebook files that really uh, uh, blew the, the lid off of uh, this internal research and the whistleblower uh, uh, talking about how the content on Instagram can be harmful to adolescents and teens. I keep thinking back to that uh, one slide, uh, Georgia, from 2019, where uh, Facebook uh, researchers wrote, we make body image issues worse for one in three girls. That's really troubling. That slide was really striking when we came across it. It it really gets at this issue of negative social comparison that can occur on Instagram. And that's when users are scrolling through the content. And rather than looking at the content with the perspective of, oh, like, I want to learn about these people. That's when instead users start doing the, oh, how do I stack up next to these people? And in the documents, what we saw is tremendous amounts of research Facebook or, you know, Facebook's Instagram unit had conducted that showed that for many teens, and in particular teen girls, the harmful effects of some of this negative social comparison could be particularly stark. Uh, There was the uh, hearing before the Senate last week uh, focused on Instagram, what the uh, whistleblower um, helped uh, uncover related to that internal uh, research. Tell us about some of the the takeaways or surprises, uh, Georgia. Yeah, so that was the first time that Adam Nasseri has ever testified on Capitol Hill. He's the the head of Instagram. And really, what really was striking about this testimony was less what he said and more what we heard from the lawmakers. And a source pointed this out to me yesterday, that if you had looked at a transcript of all the questions and statements from the lawmakers, and if you had covered up their names and their party affiliations, for the most part, it would have been really, really hard to determine from the content of what they were saying, who was a Republican and who was a Democrat. And so that demonstrated this bipartisan level of understanding of these issues and bipartisan support, for the most part, to do something about these issues that's pretty unprecedented when it comes to kind of 
lawmakers at the federal level grappling with ways they might want to regulate social media. I also thought it was interesting when we heard from Adam Mosseri, again, the Instagram head uh, at this hearing, how he defended Instagram uh, with a lot of pointed questions uh, from lawmakers. I just wanted to play this clip. Respectfully, I don't believe the research suggests that our products are addictive. Research actually shows that on 11 of 12 difficult issues that teens face, teens are struggling, said Instagram helps more than harms. Now, we always care about how people feel about their experiences on our platform, and it's my responsibility as head of Instagram to do everything I can to help keep people safe, and we're going to continue to do so. So what were your thoughts, Georgia, when you heard that come out of Adam Mosseri? Um, again, oh, there's so much more uh, benefit from uh, Instagram than, than harmful. What's your take? I think it's a really interesting issue. I've actually I've brought that um, kind of statement from Instagram to several academics who study public health and um, the effects of social media in general. And one of the things they pointed out is that just in psychology and in people's kind of experience with the world, there can be sort of a negativity bias. So um, Professor Brian Primack at the University of Arkansas pointed out to me the other day that if you're taking four classes and you're getting three A's and a C, probably the C is going to be what's on your mind and what's kind of, you know, consuming more of your like emotional state for that day. So when Adam Masseri points out that like on 11 out of 12 of the issues that Instagram was tracking, teams actually um, kind of uh, reported better outcomes that makes sense. Maybe teens do kind of find greater levels of um, like a sense of connection with their friends. But for that 12th issue, it really matters how serious is that, um, you know, negative effect the teens might be having. And for a teenager who's struggling with body issues, if that means that their eating disorder tips from being managed to maybe un, you know, not managed so well, I think a parent would really want to know. Before that Senate hearing, it was also uh, interesting how Instagram, Facebook rolled out new guidelines uh, uh, to help uh, with uh, content moderation, uh, like uh, these take a break uh, if a if, uh, user is on too long, or the fact that the company still wants to stress parental autonomy. A lot of attention on, uh, on Meta now, uh, which was formerly Facebook. I think it's the fourth time in the last uh, couple of years that they've come before uh, the Senate to talk about uh, these issues. And there's still a lot that gets through, something that we talked with Attorney General William Tong about, a lot of the bad stuff, uh, despite all of these uh, safety measures, supposedly, that are in front of, of teens and, and, and children. Can you talk about that and the experiments that lawmakers have done to show that there's a lot of work that needs to be done? The experiments the lawmakers have done, I found really striking. So so what that was referring to is Senator's um, Blumenthal from Connecticut, Blackburn from Tennessee, and um, several other senators as well, whose names I'm forgetting. During the testimony, they talked about their own um, staffers had done these different things where they would create dummy accounts on Instagram to really dive in and get their hands dirty and see like what would a hypothetical teenager be seeing on Instagram. And this is such a difference from 2018 when I and some of my colleagues were covering some of the hearings where Facebook was testifying about the Cambridge Analytica data scandal. And at that time, that was when Orrin Hatch kind of asked the famous question about, you know, asking Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, like, how do you make money? Mark Zuckerberg responded. His response turned into a meme later, but it was, Senator, we sell ads. And so at that time, that 
senators often lacked just like a basic understanding of how this company worked. But last week when we saw these senators talking about their own experiments to figure out kind of what was going through on Instagram, and what wasn't, and what, you know, what were they seeing? There's this level of sophistication now that was not there three years ago. And so whether or not this new sophistication translates into um, action and like legislative solutions, I, I don't know about that, but it's really a sea change in terms of the conversation we're hearing from Capitol Hill right now. You mentioned our Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal, who's also a chair of the Senate's Consumer Protection Subcommittee. Uh, he expressed reservations that Meta, uh, formerly Facebook, would really make these necessary changes to protect its young users. Let's hear it. I believe that the time for self-policing and self-regulation is over. Some of the big tech companies have said, trust us. That seems to be what Instagram is saying in your testimony. But Self-policing depends on trust. The trust is gone. And with that in mind, earlier, Georgia, you mentioned that this is a really bipartisan effort. So let's talk about, you know, can they reach consensus around federal legislation on um, some limits on these big tech companies? I, that's the big question. For all of the policy advocates, um, kind of lawyers, parents, teachers watching the hearings right now, I think the big question is how much can be done especially because there aren't that many legislative you know, sessions between now and when midterms, the midterm elections will likely begin to take over the conversation. And so with this newfound bipartisan level of support, I think I'm hearing a lot of anxiety. Like, I'm hearing kind of a split message. I'm hearing relief that there's bipartisan support, but anxiety around whether lawmakers, whether federal lawmakers, makers will manage to get anything done. This is where some of the people I'm talking to are more optimistic that the attorneys general, uh, and earlier you were speaking to Connecticut's attorney general, there, there's some optimi optimism that the attorneys general will have an easier time um, actually kind of making concrete progress on these issues than the federal lawmakers in the short term. You're hearing Georgia Wells here on Where We Live. She's tech reporter with The Wall Street Journal as we talk about this recent Senate hearing focused on Instagram and what lawmakers and the public know about internal research showing that some of the content uh, on these social media apps is harmful to adolescents and teens. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, as you mentioned, it's really telling that there's bipartisan support because often there can be a tension about you know government's role in regulating private companies. Can we talk about that, Georgia? Yeah, so for years, most of the conversation around whether lawmakers should regulate social media companies were focused on Section 230. And Section 230 is this, it, it provides a, a degree of, um, or it shields tech companies from liability about the content that's on their platform. And so what that means is conversations around should they do more amount of misinformation or should they do more around hate speech? Um, like those are questions of whether Section 230 should be amended. And often those conversations, especially at the federal level, would devolve into partisan um, debates. And so typically Republicans would um, kind of argue for, for less reform of 230 insofar as um, wanting to, you know, protect free speech and really kind of come down on the side of like protecting people's rights to say what they want on social media. Often Democrats 
would um, really focus on the need for the platforms to do more around fake content, particularly harmful fake content or <clears throat> on their platforms. And so that kind of created this impasse of it turned the conversation around whether to regulate social media companies into essentially a referendum on free speech, which was just like not really going to go anywhere. But now both parties appear to be aligned around the idea that they need to do more to protect children on the internet or if not the internet to protect children on social media apps. And how much of what's happening across the pond, uh, so to speak, uh, with uh, these tech companies is is maybe providing that extra nudge, if at all, Georgia? I'm thinking of the, the standards that I'd mentioned with Attorney General Tong, uh, what Britain is doing, child protection standards uh, uh, that are, are regulating uh, these companies in, in a way we're, we are not seeing here yet. Yeah, so Europe is really poised to pass an overhaul, kind of. Um, like digital governance and you know regulation for social media companies that could and it will certainly absolutely change the landscape for social media and um, the rights of children on social media in Europe. The question is like will that have any spillover effects for for us in the US and so will lawmakers here look to Europe for inspiration or will tech companies kind of went as they make changes to accommodate those changes will they actually just make some of those changes for the U.S. as well, just because it's easier to implement uh, the same version of an app in multiple markets rather than to make kind of like a separate, uh, you know, walled garden for each country they operate in. I was thinking to a suggestion from Adam Mosseri, the Instagram head, suggesting there would be an industry body to come up with uh, these guidelines like age verification or age-appropriate experiences, maybe more effective parental controls. What's your take on that, Georgia, letting industry yeah. you know, lead the way? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the problem we're at right now? <laughs> well, so I think the age verification question is a really interesting one, but, um, but per adversary statement about the, you know, potentially an industry association. So following the hearing, Senators Blumenthal and Blackburn held a press conference in which Senator Blackburn said, um, I mean, actually, we have bodies that regulate and they're not industry associations. They're called the FTC. <laughs> so that sounded like a pretty spicy statement coming out of her office that lawmakers really don't seem, they don't appear to view this idea of an industry association as the answer right now, given this lack of trust that, you know, for years, these issues have persisted and that the companies appear to have only addressed them when forced to do so rather than at their own um, kind of behest or urging. And what will you be watching in the weeks and months ahead, Georgia? You know, when we think about this heightened attention on big tech companies, the fact that Instagram for kids, uh, that idea has been postponed. I think some uh, parents are breathing a sigh of relief there. Yeah, the Instagram for kids is one of the top things I'm going to be watching. Because as you mentioned, you know, Facebook, Meta, Instagram, whatever you want to call it, they've said they've postponed it. But postponed, I mean, what does that like actually mean? And we haven't gotten that many more details about it. Um, and many of the lawmakers last week were asking for more details from Adam Masseri about <clears throat> Instagram for kids um, because Facebook has repeatedly um, described the need for Instagram for kids is because kids are already on Instagram. They need a separate place that would be just for them. But many of the lawmakers I'm speaking to are really concerned that if Instagram doesn't actually address how to keep children off of the regular Instagram app, what would keep in children 
from staying on the regular Instagram app, why would kids go over to the version for children? And might this just increase the size of the market for the number of children that Instagram is uh, kind of serving its products to? So that will be really interesting to see what happens. And also scrutiny of TikTok and YouTube continues as well. Georgia Wells, we'd love to have you back on the show again, tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. After the break, what do parents need to know to help their children use social media in a way that isn't harmful? We talked to Common Sense Media. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the effects of social media on adolescents and teens and the changes policymakers want to see from big tech companies. Now, while Americans wait to see if legislation can make a difference, there are useful tips for parents who want to make sure their kids are using these apps safely. Joining us now on Zoom is Michael Robb, Senior Director of Research at Common Sense. This is a national nonprofit that researches the role of media in the lives of children. Michael, welcome to the show. Great. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, challenging times for parents when we think about ways to keep our, our children safe. Uh, so much information out there, so many apps that are children's uh, fingertips. And so when we think about the, the uses of, of social media, you know, there are some benefits. We don't want to discount those. But thinking about ways to help children navigate them, Michael, what are some tips for parents? Yeah, I think um, it helps to be empathetic when you think about your kids and their relationship to social media. The thing that we know about adolescence is that it is really characterized by a real heightened sensitivity to social evaluation. It's a time when they're exploring their identities. It's a time when they're developing, you know, really close friendships with their friends. And their social media use is really perfectly aligned with a lot of those developmental goals. By the way, those are things that all happen before social media and will happen long after social media. Um, so when we're thinking about this, I think it's important to just kind of be understanding that like this, these are things that kids are always going to want to do, no matter whether it's technology or not. So if your kids are using social media, um, it's never too late to just start to listen to them. And I think it can be very easy for parents to maybe dismiss social media uh, you know, as superficial or not healthy for kids, but for many tweens and teens, it's their social lives. So being careful not to judge, um, even though you may think Snapchat or TikTok is kind of dumb, um, your kid doesn't necessarily. And connect, like I said, connecting with their friends on these social platforms is just kind of a normal part of what of their child development. So for you, you know, you're seeing it as just like hours on the phone. For them, it means, you know, lots of memes and like crazy stuff and whatever. And so you kind of just have to accept that it's important to them. Um, the important thing is trying to set up environments in which it's going to be safe for them to experience uh, these things and to be able to be social with their, their friends in online spaces. When you say set up environments, what do you mean? Because when I when I see the reports like from Georgia Wells, the Wall Street Journal, that a lot of children are, are getting on social media uh, who are younger than 13. You know, I have a 10 year old in my house. That worries me. Uh, it worries me, too, because uh, those social media platforms, not only are they not usually designed for adolescents, they were really not designed for kids under the age of 13. And social media companies almost certainly know that there are large numbers of children under the age of 13 um, using their platforms. Um, it would really be, I think, both in the tech company's best interest as well as um, kids' best interest if the social media platforms were designed not necessarily with keeping people's attention uh, as kind of the end goal, but as, well, what about the health and user well-being? 
right? So if they were designing as like, how do we maximize kids' health and safety and well-being, I think you'd probably see a different suite of products or at least certain different kinds of features that were enabled from the get-go um, that might make it safe. I think one of the unfortunate things, at least for a lot of parents, is just acknowledging that even kids under 13 are likely to be online. Um, and whether there's a rule about it or not, like they're going to find their way there. And so it's probably on us to try to make sure that we create safe online spaces for them. Um, you know, I, listening to the two previous guests, uh, you know, you might say that probably Facebook may not be the company to design that, at least in its current incarnation, um, to design that safe online space for kids under the age of 13. But certainly there's a space for somebody uh, to be thinking a lot more critically about it than they are now. And what about parents? We think about how we model our use uh, of social mm -hmm. media apps because uh, kids are paying attention, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. One of the primary way that kids and teens learn is by watching others and by watching their parents. So if as a parent, you are frequently on your phone and you are interrupting uh, your, your conversations with your children with others in order to attend to your phone, that's going to be seen as a behavior that's acceptable. Um, if you're frequently multitasking, you know, you're watching TV, but at the same time you're on your phone or, you know, you're trying to do too many things at once that involve devices, that's going to be seen as acceptable behavior. Um, what would be helpful is for parents to model um, even little things at first, you know, just set aside some times and places where maybe it's good to just shut off entirely. So, you know, having uh, mealtimes be a time where everybody just shuts off and is together or modeling that. You know, bedtime is a time where, you know, after nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, the Wi-Fi is turned off, everyone takes a break, and we don't interrupt our sleep. There are little things that parents, I think, can do to help model um, for their kids what would be much more kind of health-promoting behaviors in ways that don't just, that aren't just shut it down, which a kid will you know, naturally turn away from. The role of parents is certainly important, but um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of how schools are getting involved in this conversation about uh, you know, using social media apps? What is helpful and what's harmful, Michael? It's tough to say because so many schools have different policies about social media use um, and not just social media use, but like technology use in general. Um, and in general, I try to leave it up to the discretion of uh, the teacher in the schools, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily that um, children just have like unfettered access to uh, media within the school. But I think sometimes parents maybe worry a little bit too much about the use of technology for school. They just kind of lump it into this general screen time category. And I don't think it's necessarily the case that we should be equating um, technology use, even social media use, that could be for school with other kinds of entertainment technology use because the uses and the outcomes are, are so different. Um, I see a lot of parents feeling guilt or a lot of worry that, oh my God, my kid is on their computer. We're doing so many things um, for school and it's just compounding, just adding so much time. Um, and I would urge them to maybe not feel so guilty about that because we, we can't treat all screen time as equal. Mm. We also, uh, we, we appreciate our privacy and, you know, navigating that with uh, your children because parents can check in and see what you're doing online uh, at times. And, and that can sometimes uh, hurt the, the, the trust between uh, child and parents. So what are some ways uh, to help walk that line? It's tough. I, so there is certainly a difference between just kind of being... You don't want to be necessarily a spy or have your child not trust you when it comes to their social media use. But at the same time, you do want to set them up for success. 
So one of the great things about kids is they actually really like to talk about their technology use um, and what they're doing on media, especially the younger they are. Um, so it can be a good time to actually ask them to, to have them walk you through what they're doing online and walk you through the settings that of their different apps. And at that point, I mean, that's a, a point where you can help do things that will protect their privacy, like, for example, turn off location services or other kinds of settings in which apps might be sharing data. And that's also a point of um, where you can have a, a conversation with your child about the what, what these companies are doing, you know, in terms of storing and using your information and selling your information without your direct knowledge to other companies. Um, and, you know, why and in what circumstances you should be able to say um, no. So I think um, having your kids walk you through that. And like I said, trying to keep an open line of conversation where your child feels comfortable telling you when, you know, maybe they've encountered something upsetting or, you know, there's digital drama online and being able to listen with an empathetic ear, not necessarily a judgmental ear, um, I think will also pay dividends in the long run in terms of helping to protect them um, online. Earlier, we talked about what some uh, remedies could be on the federal level. That's, of course, still being ironed out. But you know, just expecting tech companies uh, to do a better job um, thinking about privacy, not expecting children to know how to, you know, to, yes. to set uh, their privacy settings and make sure that things are not public. It, it's ludicrous. The amount of um, pressure and responsibility that has been kind of offloaded to parents and children, I think, is kind of ridiculous. Um, by default, especially because we think typically of children as being a special audience with special needs, things should be opt-in and not opt-out. So, you know, lots of times it's the case when a child installs a social media app on their phone, they're opted into all kinds of data sharing or to sharing particular kinds of information that they shouldn't be. Um, and it would be, I think, really in the best interest of kids if the tech companies were really assessing and addressing the risks that children are facing uh, by potential use of their product at the very front end of development, as opposed to putting something out there and just kind of iterating and being like, well, that didn't kind of work. You know, there's that ethos of, you know, work fast and break things. And I don't think that necessarily works when you're talking about serving kids. Um, because in the end, you know, the kids are going to be doing things that you don't expect or putting themselves in situations that could be harmful to their mental or even physical health. Um, and so they have to be extra, extra careful when they put those things out there that the default settings and default features aren't things that are likely to result in user harm. We'll have to leave it there. Michael Robb, Senior Director of Research at Common Sense. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate your perspective. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible.